This is episode 196 of IDRA Class Notes. There's only five or six people in the whole state who understood the school finance system, probably through the 60s and early 70s. You would often find that even the superintendents, they didn't understand how the system worked. And basically, they were manipulated. As long as you in the poor district got an extra $50 a student or $100 a student, you'd say, thank you, that's all we need. Even though the wealthy districts also got an extra $100 or $200 a student, and the disparities remained or were exacerbated. You are listening to part one of a four-part series on school finance for IDRA's podcast, Class Notes. My name is Morgan Craven. I'm the National Director of Policy at IDRA. Since its founding in 1973, IDRA has focused its research, community engagement, and policy efforts on expanding access to excellent, equitable education opportunities for all students. A significant part of ensuring access to those opportunities requires securing fair funding for schools, no matter the part of town in which they are located, the number of students of color or English learners, or the level of wealth of families in the community. I'm pleased to host this school finance podcast series with episodes focused on the history of school finance legislation, activism, and litigation in Texas, the most recent legal and policy fights, the passage of the major school finance reform bill in 2019, House Bill 3, and the future of equitable school funding in Texas. I will be having this four-part conversation with two other school finance advocates who have been part of the research, litigation, and policy work on this issue in Texas for decades. Dr. Albert Cortez was the Director of School Finance Reform Project and the Director of Policy at IDRA for many years. He was also an expert witness in numerous school finance cases, a resource expert for policy-focused organizations and coalitions, and the author of many articles on a broad array of school finance issues. Dr. Cortez has testified before Texas and other state bodies, including the U.S. Senate Education and Labor Committees on a range of education issues. Professor Al Kaufman was a civil rights litigator specializing in the education, voting, and employment rights of Latinos. Professor Kaufman was the senior litigating attorney for the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, MALDEF, in San Antonio for almost 20 years. As a MALDEF attorney, Kaufman was the lead attorney for plaintiffs in the Texas school finance cases, for Latino plaintiffs in the Texas higher education system finance and desegregation case, and in litigation challenging the state's use of the TOS test for graduation from Texas high schools. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, first, I just want to say welcome to the two of you, Professor Kaufman and Dr. Cortez, Al and Albert, and thank you so much for your expertise and what you're about to share over the course of these four podcast episodes. We're going to jump right in with the first segment of this uh, school funding series, the history of school finance in Texas. So we're going to start with you, Al. Can you give an overview of the activism and litigation that have impacted school funding in Texas and um, specifically focus on the time period before the most recent Texas Supreme Court case? Well, it began roughly at the time of the Bible and it's worked on since then. (laughs) Uh, Texas from its very creation, discriminated against areas of Latino population. And even after the Texas-Mexican War, there was discrimination. So that was the the background for all of this. Now, during the 
30s, 40s, and 50s, there began to be an understanding of some of the disparities between the rich districts and poor districts. There were 6,000 districts in the 30s and 40s, and now we have about 1,000. So there were even disparities certainly among the 6,000. As they began to consolidate and as information became more easily available, people began to see the pattern that certain districts were underfunded and other districts were overfunded. And that became clearer and clearer in the 1950s and 1960s. There was recognition of that. Now that led around the country. There's similar situations around the country, although I don't think any of them was quite as blatant as Texas, but there were cases in state and federal courts developing, challenging the inequalities in school finance. That led to two very important cases. The first really was a state case in California, Serrano versus Priest. In that case, the California Supreme Court said that their school finance system violated the state's constitution. And it was about the same time that the U.S. Supreme Court case heard a case from San Antonio. San Antonio was the epicenter of a lot of these struggles because of the terrible disparities between uh, Alamo Heights and Edgewood, but also generally between richer and poor districts. And so that case was brought uh, in San Antonio. A three-judge court found that the system violated the U.S. Constitution. That went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court, five to four, decided that the Texas system really was not rational, didn't make sense, but was still constitutional because education wasn't a fundamental right and wealth wasn't a suspect category. So you could look at the Texas system under the, the least difficult standard of review. Even then, Texas barely passed. That was in 1973. Now, that case, though, made the Texas system the subject of of national scrutiny. People all around the country say, wow, Texas system is terrible. The people in Alamo Heights actually have twice as much money per student as the people in Edgewood, and many other districts in Texas are affected by the same thing. The wealthy districts had lower tax rates and higher expenditures. The poor district had higher tax rates, lower expenditures, and the poor districts had more students that needed more money, not less. Can I pause to ask you for people who may be listening that don't quite understand this concept of education not being a fundamental right in this country? Can you say a little bit about that and why that is an important thing that the U.S. Supreme Court has said? The law developed during, actually during the 1920s, 1930s, that when a federal court looks at a system to see whether it discriminates against one group or another, they have different types of reviews. If it's a fundamental right, like the right to marry, privacy, etc., the courts subject the system to the strictest review called strict scrutiny. If it's a regular uh, classification, like uh, where, where the parks go, where the highways go, the level of funding for welfare, all those matters are subject to a much lower level of scrutiny called rational basis. So in the Rodriguez case, that was the U.S. Supreme Court case with Rodriguez versus San Antonio ISD, in that case, the plaintiffs, Demetrio Rodriguez and other people from Edgewood and around, actually around the state, sued and said education is a fundamental right, so you have to subject the Texas system to the strictest scrutiny. In other words, the state of Texas could only defend the system if they could show they had a compelling interest in it and they did it in the least restrictive way. 
That was their argument. The Supreme Court looked at that and said, no, education is really not a fundamental right, so we don't have to subject Texas's system to that strict scrutiny. Yeah, thank you for that explanation. I've always found that to be such an appalling decision, that small part in particular, to just say that out loud, that education is not a fundamental right for children is so disturbing. I agree. Yeah. Uh, it makes no sense to me, but it did make sense to five members of the U.S. Supreme Court in 1973, sure. and I guess that's what's important. <laughs> so that was in 1973. There were still a lot of inequalities in Texas. People began to study those inequalities more and more. IDRA, Intercultural Development Research Association here, was formed in part to study school finance in more detail. Dr. Jose Cardenas had been the superintendent of this very poor Edgewood district and wanted to have a study center to look at the effects of this. So during the 1970s, IDRA and others began to study the system in much more detail. And then in the early 1980s, they went to Maldef to represent the poor districts and poor families to sue the state in state court rather than federal court. Basically, the argument was the federal court said it's none of federal court's business, so the state courts maybe can deal with it, as had been done in other states. So that led to the Edgewood One case, we call it. And in 1989, the Texas Supreme Court found the system unconstitutional under the Texas Constitution. It was not an efficient system. Can you talk a little bit about the families who were part of these cases and the students who were really activists to push forward, you know, the movement to litigate school funding cases? Sure. There were families all over the state that were terribly impacted by the school finance system. And Maldef represented some from the Texas Valley, Brownsville, Edinburgh, Farsam Juan Alamo, all the way to El Paso, the Socorro and San Nazario school districts in El Paso, as well as San Antonio, the Demetrio Rodriguez and others, and some families in, in the Houston area in poor districts and in central Texas in poor districts and the districts. So these families said, look, our kids are worth the same as all other kids in the state, but the state doesn't treat them equally, and that violates their basic constitutional rights. Yeah, I imagine such courageous people, too. Very strong. It takes yeah. a lot of guts to sue the school districts and to sue the whole state of Texas. Mm-hmm. A lot of school districts were reluctant even to get involved in the litigation because they were afraid of the commissioner of education. Uh, they were afraid of the state agency. They were afraid to be seen as activists or troublemakers. And so a lot of districts were very reluctant to join into the lawsuit. Edgewood's been known for a long time as a very courageous uh, school district, but there were others. Uh, in, in San Antonio, we had Harlandale and South San Antonio. We had districts in El Paso, Houston, the Valley, but many districts were very reluctant. They were afraid. And of course, many families were extremely reluctant to sue the state. Yes. So Albert, to you, so we've covered very nicely the activism and litigation history. What were the major moments in terms of legislation and policy that happened as a result of the activism and litigation that Al just described? Well, hand in hand with the activism at the court level. When IDRA was formed, as Al pointed out, the organization spent a lot of time just doing public education efforts all over the state to make communities, educators, anyone interested in the issue, the extent of the inequities in funding across Texas school districts, and just as importantly, the fundamental causes 
for those inequities, things that might be undertaken uh, to achieve better, uh, more equity in the system. When the Edward One decision finally came down, the challenge that rose from it was that while the state court and the state Supreme Court in a nine to zero ruling noted that the system was unconstitutional, it did not lay out specifics on what the remedy was to address inequities that it said were unconstitutional. So as an organization, we did a lot of public education uh, efforts around the state to have people understand that the surface level changes that the state had put in place in the early efforts to first avoid the litigation and then to minimally address the court decisions that uh, came down in the early stages of the court cases, that the patchwork minimal approach that they took, which included uh, providing studies to see what it might take to arrive at greater equity without putting any real substantive policy reform in place. We worked very closely, not only with communities, we, we worked with members of the legislature who themselves, as the body that was going to come up with the policy resolution, needed to be a lot more informed and a lot more involved in framing the solutions that needed to come from the advocates from those communities to create more equity in the system. So we spent a lot of time, frankly, just raising public awareness, improving understanding. But we also then, you know, actually did provide expert uh, testimony, both within the litigation strand, but also we testified on the issue during legislative hearings about the kinds of substantive changes that needed to occur in the system. And among the fundamental ones were the need for the state to find a way to equalize the resources that were available to different districts of varying wealth, but also to recognize that the different needs of different students varied and that among the responses that the state needed to frame was a recognition that those different costs associated with different districts and different students needed to be part of the solution that was going to be crafted. So a lot of those initial years, that first decade of effort, went toward not only framing the extent of the problem, but also educating and helping people develop comprehensive solutions to the issues that have been raised in the court cases. So to the first of the two that you mentioned, equalizing resources, you know, one approach to that that has been villainized by a lot of people is the system of recapture that Texas currently has, what some people would call Robin Hood. Um, Can you talk about your history with recapture and why you think that that is an important way to equalize resources across a state like Texas? It was interesting that a lot of folks don't realize that recapture was the second major reform attempt that the state tried to implement to equalize resources across districts. Preceding that effort was 
the consolidation of school district tax bases at the county education district level that was actually adopted as state policy and was in place for several years before wealthy districts that didn't like the idea of having the same resources available to what they considered their less worthy counterparts sued the state and had that county education district declared unconstitutional. The follow-up to that decision was for the state to come up with an alternative mechanism to neutralize wealth differences. And in a couple of other states, the idea of having districts with a lot of high wealth that was not accessible to the state as a whole to equalize resources, the state used recapture as a way of neutralizing that additional wealth that high wealth districts had and using that revenue to help provide the resources that were needed to equalize expenditures across districts around the state. Now we have to keep in mind that at the time that the litigation was being argued that something like 5% of the districts in the state had upwards of 25% of all the property wealth available in the state of Texas. And the only way you were going to eventually get at equity was to find some way to access that revenue in a way that was more equitably available to all districts and the state eventually chose to use recapture as that mechanism. So we're gonna do a quick interlude about intentionality and community involvement in policy. So Albert. One of the things that surfaced in our early work uh, was the need to have local communities whose schools and children were the ones that were bearing the burden. Having them become a lot more not only involved and, and knowledgeable, but engaged in the actual reform process itself. And we spent literally years doing sessions around the state of Texas, defining the issues, talking about the causes for the issues, and noting to folks around the state that the system didn't come about by accident, that the inequalities that we saw and the unfairness that was reflected in the system was an intentional one, that the system had been created by a small group of architects that had almost unfettered opportunities to frame the school funding system in whatever way they saw fit. Unfortunately, many of them represented high wealth areas and made sure that they created a system that created advantages for some and disadvantages for others. And unfortunately, it also included elements of discrimination because there was an assumption that there was a concentration of minority and disadvantaged children in low wealth districts. Unfortunately, that was a misconception because as we did the review of data, we found out that poor districts and poor students and students of different special needs were distributed in all kinds of districts and not necessarily concentrated in just low wealth, high minority schools. I think I wanted to add to that. 
first of all, there, there of course, is some concentration of Mexican-Americans in the poorest districts. That's true. And at the time we did the first Edgewood case, the very poorest districts were 95% Mexican-American, even though they were only 30% of the state at the time. So there clearly was that focus. And I do think that the fact that it did have that negative effect on historically Mexican-American districts was one reason why the state allowed the system to go on, because those people, those people in South and West San Antonio and the border area in El Paso, they're not really as ready for our education as others. So there's a lot of old-style racism there. There's also another motivation for the wealthy landowners to save tax monies. And one of the bases for the old system was that the wealthy oil wealthy districts uh, in West Texas, the South Texas, all over the state, obtained major advantages from the system because they were taxed at very low levels on their very valuable land for oil or agriculture. So I think those two things together. At the same time, what Albert said is certainly right, that I think there was maybe to some extent those of us who had complained about it did too good a job. People began to think that's only a Mexican-American issue, uh, when in fact, as IDRA found, and then later on, Controller Bullock did a major study showing that there are low-wealth districts all over the state, and he drew these maps showing how there are low-wealth districts all over the state, which is certainly true, and that began to improve recognition. I want to add on one more thing to what Albert said about the knowledge of the situation. He said earlier that there's only five or six people in the whole state who understood the school finance system back in the probably through the 60s and early 70s, the commissioner of education, head of the education committees in the Senate and the House, someone from the speaker's office, someone in the lieutenant governor's office, maybe someone from the governor's office, they understood the system. No one else did. And when people like Dr. Cortez at IDRA and others went out to educate the communities, you would often find that even the superintendents didn't understand the system. They didn't understand how the system worked. And basically, they were manipulated that as long as you in the poor district got an extra $50 a student or $100 a student, you'd say, thank you, God, thank you, that's all we need, even though the wealthy districts also got an extra one or $200 a student, and the disparities remained or were exacerbated. So I think that was an incredible lack of knowledge for me when I went out to start talking about these things, and I'm sure when Dr. Cortez did the same thing. And I would say that that's, you know, certainly true even now, this past legislative session where we did have a pretty major overhaul of the school finance system. But I would say that the same criticism or critique of the system that you just made exists even today. Very few people understand how school finance works. Very few people are given very clear numbers and data about the impact of any changes on their district. And a lot of districts who have been underfunded for a very long time are willing to accept a little bit, even though others who have not been underfunded at the same level are getting significantly more. 1984 really sticks out as a year of major policy changes. Certainly this session, a lot of folks, including us, were referring to changes that hadn't happened since 1984, particularly related to funding weights for different groups of students, as you mentioned. Could you talk a little bit about the major things that came out around that time as it relates to school funding overall and the impact on equity and maybe focusing on special student populations? What had not been available to a lot of people around the state was the severity of inequality that existed in the state of Texas 
in terms of the kinds of resources that were available to uh, different districts and therefore different students around the state. And as we went through the educational reform, uh, funding reform process, the very direct impact that resources had on the quality of teachers that were available to children, the, the kinds of school buildings and the conditions in those buildings that differed from district to district, the opportunities for extracurricular activities and how that impacted children. All of those came to light as a result of, of the struggles that were ongoing. And what became a little known issue became a source of outrage for many communities that while they knew they were at a disadvantage, came to very, very clear realization of the inequities and the unfairness that was associated with the system as it existed at the time. My last question for this segment, the history of school finance, can you each describe the moment when you personally realized the importance of achieving fair school funding, starting with you, Al? Well, I think when I went to take the depositions of the people at Highland Park ISD, an extremely wealthy district outside Dallas that's had, you know, Ross Perot, uh, Clemens, etc., all lived in that district. And I saw their observatory, astronomical observatory, and their facilities, and their library, and the superintendent's office. I mean, they just living in a different world than the people in the districts I had been working with in Edgewood and South San and San Elizario and Socorro. So that, that's one moment that struck me. The other moment was when I went to El Paso and I, I worked in the San Elizario district, which is right on the river. And I, I saw that their facilities hadn't been developed in the last 50 years. And they're trying to serve an exploding population and no way to pay for it. And they had much higher tax rates than any district in the state and still had nothing. So those two things, I think, really uh, imprinted it on my head. What about you, Albert? Actually, my history dates back to my days uh, as a student in the Edgewood School District at Kennedy High School. And when we went to intramural competitions in other school districts, I began to get some insights about the quality of resources that were available to people that you were competing against and getting the sense that you were working against a stacked deck. The inequality was palpable. But it became even more clear to me when I worked as a college recruiter at uh, one of the local colleges where I worked as a financial aid office person and part-time recruiter and visited one of the higher wealth districts in the city and was trying to convince people to attend our, our college as, as one of the options for them to consider. And what struck me was, first of all, the quality of their facilities they had an auditorium that I thought was comparable to our civic auditorium in San Antonio. And we were meeting in individual classrooms with high-tech equipment uh, surrounding us for presentation purposes and I imagine for instructional purposes for people there. But what really hit home is as I talked to the students about the possibilities of attending this particular small Catholic college in San Antonio was the fact that in the small classroom that I was presenting in, 
there was a handful of individual. And for those individuals, it was not an issue of if and when. It was a question of where they were going to attend college. Mm -hmm. College was a given for those children because that had been instilled as both an expectation and the resources provided to set them up for that kind of, of opportunity. And for them, it was not a matter of whether you're going to college, but where you were going to college. And in that session, I remember Princeton was there and Yale was there, Harvard was Yale, USC was there, uh, Stanford was there. And I remember in our college nights in the Edgewood School District, we didn't see any of those institutions represented. And that's when I knew that fundamental change in the system needed to start happening, and it needed to start happening right now. Mm -hmm. I guess to answer my own question, I have similarly, once I started understanding systemic and structural issues, particularly racism and the history of all of that in this country, I started really appreciating how intentional a lot of what we have now is in terms of segregated communities and what that means for access to so many things, including good schools. So I guess my own appreciation of the importance of fair school funding has come as I have, as the kids now say, my like becoming a more woke person to so many of the deep historical institutional isms in our country. So it's been so great to hear from both of you who have worked for so long on a very important issue, school finance, just to get an overview of the history of that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.